What is the evidence of true spirituality? What is legalism? Why is it dangerous? Why is the Bible necessary for salvation? What is it that makes Christianity the truth and the way against all other religions? Is the church really a place or is it a people? What does it mean to be filled with the Spirit? How can we know what translation of the Bible is actually correct? Does God want me to be happy? What is John 3.16 really say? What's wrong with the Word of Faith movement? Am I able to ask God for immense wealth? Is there sufficient knowledge for salvation in the Bible? Maybe you've had questions similar to these, or maybe you have a question that needs to be answered. Well, your wait is now over. The weekly podcast of Theology Answers can be your guide to answering questions about Scripture, theology, church history, contextual criticism. Join us as we peel through the pages of Scripture and find the answers that you're looking for. You can find us online at TheologyAnswers.com, and you can ask your questions there. We are a podcast as a part of the Striving for Eternity Christian podcast community. Join us there at strivingforeternity.org. We were just talking before we started the recording uh, in, in, in relation to the fact that many of these gospel naysayers actually have all these tiny little verses that they think are powerful one-two punches or bombs or <laughs> what was the word that you used, brother, in that? Well, the, the big guns. The big guns, that's it. They, you know, they've got their big guns, and they really say, see, we got you, ta-da. And, and we're going to talk about this at the end of our podcast today, but that's not what defending the faith is all about. It's not about the ta-da, we won. There's no there's no place for that in the work of the Lord. And so for 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 our audience, for you, we want you to understand our heart. We're not trying to say, see, we're smarter, we know better. Because if we all came to, together and we have this big gun verse, ta-da, this word beats your entire theology, well, we're not really approaching the Scripture correctly. And we see a lot of times where people will just have one or two large techniques or large scriptures, and they try to use them as a technique to overcome the gospel of grace and the holistic teaching of the Word of God. But what we know about the scripture is when we teach it in context and we teach it fully, is that it teaches a consistent gospel of grace alone, a sovereign grace whereby God has saved his elect through the finished work of Jesus Christ, and he causes them to come to faith as he pleases without any consequence of their desire or decision or anything of that nature. And we didn't have time to get into 2 Peter 3, 9 a couple of weeks ago. And so that's what we're going to do uh, today. But before that, let's do a little review, Brother Edward, um, of some of the world passages and all passages that we've already discussed. Okay. Um, it's interesting when you were saying ta-da. I said, is he quoting a Greek term there, ta, with panta? Uh, <laughs> that's right. No, that's <laughs> because the... one, of, one of the... If, uh-huh. No, that's a hick word. That's that's a southern word. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, it, because it, I think we opened the last pro- podcast up with uh, really the nature of the discussion, which was um, we we opened with the main issue of the nature of the discussion, which is God's sovereignty. That's correct. Tapanta, uh, ta-da, tapanta, yeah. all things uh, he orchestrates after the counts of his own will, Ephesians one eleven, and right. that re- where this argument really. Um, I would say revolves around because if if God is sovereign over the eternal destiny of man, then he 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 is the potter and we are the clay, and there's no 
um, complaining, as Paul says, you know, why did you make me like this? Nobody can say that. So that's our, our premise for this, these discussions, the sovereignty of God, tapanta, in all things, the yes. all things. And Amen. there's nothing that exists aside that. Last time we were together, we looked at some of the most uh, utilized and misapplied, I would say, verses um, that Arminians and others just that have no idea what Arminianism and Calvinism is. They just, you know, they go to that Calvary Chapel Church down the street or the yes. Baptist Church, and they're just taught this, you know. Um, so we looked at these passages, and a lot of them are used against the Reformed or Calvinistic sovereign position. Um, and we looked at the world passages that is used, and First John one twenty nine, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. world right. And of course, we answer that by saying the world, it's the world of elect, because you know, we, we look at all the usages of the term cosmos and um, cosmos, and we know that to mean every single person, first of all, that, was, that wasn't even a uh, predominant meaning, right. but in John's theology, this is congruent with uh, not only this passage, but with chapter 6 and with First John. Yes. So it's the world, and it's only the world of the elect that the sins are actually taken away as the the verb here indicates. Yeah. And also in John, uh, we looked at John 3.16, and we went over that, and that's probably the most misapplied and misinterpreted right. passage, because and it gives people a false solace. That's what it actually does, mainly because of the King James reading, whosoever, right. and the term world. But right. Again, we have that term world. Now, we know I mean, it could mean every single person. I mean, in, in the New Testament, how it's utilized, but there's at least, there's almost a dozen different usages. I think I counted eight or nine different usages. There's maybe more, but um, certainly this is not the same world that John said, don't love the world, right? In First John. <laughs> right. So we, and we looked at verses 17 and 18, which uh, really those verses are never addressed in concert with John three sixteen. That's right. By the Arminians and others, which, um, and I always tell the Arminian, if you're going to take world here in John three sixteen to mean every single person, congratulations, you are now a universalist. Yes. Um, then we looked at the last one. We looked at the um, of the world passages, First John two two. two. Mm-hmm. But the problem there is, um, it says he is our propitiation, um, the propitiation for our sins. Uh, the problem is, first the verb esteem um, just completely erases the idea. It's a future potential propitiation. He is our propitiation, present tense verb, not only for our, or not only uh, not for ours only, but for those in the whole world, meaning not just for me, my associates, and my my church members, but even Jews and Gentiles outside this church. Yes. That's the only consistent rendering in the context of uh, if you really believe propitiation is actual. If you don't believe it's actual, I would suggest do a word study or get some good language tools or just read a lot of mm-hmm. basic theology because Jesus doesn't die potentially. Right. Um, then, we, then we looked at the all passages, right? The That's First right. Timothy 2.4. Two, four who desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And which is interesting, aside from the context here, I pointed out in 2 Timothy 2.25, it says, if God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of truth. The same phrase is used here, showing that God grants somebody the knowledge of truth. And thank yeah. God, James, he granted us that knowledge. Right. But the context there is all kinds of persons. I would suggest to um, anyone that... that that is interested in this text, 
that uh, please consider, pay attention to the context starting in the very beginning of chapter 2. It talks about kings and those who are in authority. Right. All men, he does desire all kinds of men to mm-hmm. be saved, and guess what? He actually saves those men to That's whom correct. Christ died for. Now, uh, we didn't get to Second Peter 3.9. No. We're in Second Peter 3.9, and we, we were... We were I'm, before we recorded. We were discussing how, um, and I know most people that I talk uh, talk about or talk uh, about this verse in, of course, in opposition. They always isolate this passage. You ask them what the context is, who's Peter addressing, and so on and so forth. Nobody knows. They don't even know where it's at. They just know the phrase, not wishing any to perish, will all come to repentance. So I think we should, um, since this is one of the popular ones, like John 3.16 and First John right. 2, I think we should uh, discuss this and um, for the edification of uh, those who want to go further in, a, you know, in their study of God's Word and to hear and allow the Scripture to read for itself. Right. Well, why don't we do that? Why don't I just take just a second and to read, like, the chapter 3? just that portion that includes verse 9. Why don't I do that for our listeners? Okay. All right, Second Peter okay. chapter 3. This is now the second letter that I am writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I am stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God, and that by means of these the world that then existed was deluged with water and perished. But by the same word the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. So those are verses 1 through 10 of 2 Peter 3. And just at the onset, brother, I see there that that Peter is dealing, he's reminding them, he's written them before. And the purpose of this particular section of this letter is what? Why did he write it? That he may stir up their sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing what? That scoffers will come, and they will say where? Quote, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers died, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. In other words, the Lord isn't coming to save you. There's no, there's nothing going to take place here. You guys are stupid. <laughs> That's really what Peter is addressing here. Because the audience are the Jews who have come to be born again by the Holy Spirit. Now they are in Christ. They are the elect. 
and therefore they are alive in Christ. And then what happened is they suffered greatly. And so Peter writes to them in the dispersia. They were all dispersed all over Palestine and Asia Minor, and they are they, he writes to them to encourage them, as he does in their first letter, and then also here in the second letter, he does the same thing, to remind them that these things were reported to them, not only from the prophets, but also from the Lord Jesus. And so they have this mindset, Edward, that there's this, there's, there, there's this slowness, that God is not acting fast enough, and maybe these scoffers are right. We're not saved. We're not going to be, we're not going to be redeemed. This is all a big joke. This is the temptation of the flesh and the occasion, if you will, especially in this portion of chapter 3 of Second Peter. This is the occasion of the writing. And this is important as we learn to understand how to interpret Scripture because we need to know who wrote it and who the audience was and why it was written. And Peter tells us here. So I'll let you run with that cool. as we get to verse 9. You pretty much sums it up. No, uh, I, no, I, I say that because you started with what verse? You started with verse 1. Verse 1, right. And, exactly. And most folks, again, um, I, I don't want to broad brush, but many folks, I should say, aren't even familiar where this passage is. They just like the quote, not willing any should perish. Right. Um, the, the first question is, who's Peter's audience? Right. Um, of course, we go to chapter 1 of Second Peter, those who have received a faith, the same kind of ours, right. uh, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All those who love the God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who hold to the Trinity, to hold the justification through faith alone, that's his audience. Yes. Short answer, Christians. Christians. The, that, those are the, the Christians. Now, what you did, James, by quoting verse 1, is that you laid the, the, the context. In other words, most people that quote this, or uh, many people who quote this in opposition to the doctrines of grace, who oppos in opposition to election of God, um, they're not considering, they're not paying attention to the context. In other words, this, all these passages here that you just read have nothing to do, it's not a salvation chapter here. Nope. The issue is the second coming of Christ. Right. The second coming of Christ. Not, you know, six ways to be saved, right. but the second coming of Christ. Yeah. And that's very important that um, the reader should realize. And as I've said many times, aside from linguistics and word meaning and grammar, so on and so forth, what rules? Context. That governs everything. It governs word meanings. It governs how we should interpret the text. That's right. You've got to pay attention to context. Yeah. Um, so first and foremost, the context is the second coming of Christ, not necessarily salvation. It's not there. That's right. not the context. It's the That's second right. coming of Jesus Christ. And if it is related to and, salvation, wouldn't you say that if it is related to salvation, the only way that we can get to salvation as the context is the assurance of the salvation of the elect who are his audience? Can we go there? Exactly. Okay. Absolutely. Because there is a there's a document context, and we're looking at the author's context, but the document context, look, from the, the entirety of biblical revelation— teaches definite atonement throughout, I mean, throughout the scriptures, definite atonement. In Mark 10, 45, and John 1, 13, and John 6, and yes. 13, 48 of Acts. So Peter is not all of a sudden going to teach something contrary to what was already stated. 
That's right. To be sure. Um, now, this is in opposition to the Armenian understanding of the passage, and um, that that is my first point against that universal atonement kind of meaning. He, w- he really wants everyone to be saved, but he really can't do it because not he's willing not for any should should uh, should perish, but he he tries really hard. Okay, <laughs> that's not even a concept in Scripture because he doesn't try; he saves infallibly. Um, Context is my first point here. It's the second coming, not salvation. The second point, as you, uh, and I'm glad you started with verse 1, as you uh, read, is that Peter uh, addresses his specific audience to whom he is writing. Now, that is the elect. Beloved, um, I'm writing to you, right? We see that in, in one. I'm writing to you. That's right. Um, that's what verse 1 says. Beloved, I am, it's the same audience as chapter 1, verse 1. Right. I'm writing to you, uh, who mean, you know, you, my audience, second person plural, all of you, the, the elect that I already mentioned in the beginning of my entire letter, and in verse 2, that you remember the words spoken beforehand. Yes. It's very important to identify the audience to which Peter is writing, because if you don't, you will be lost. Yes. Got to follow the pronouns, you know, follow, follow the contextual trail. I'm writing to you. Who is That's you? Right. The audience. That's right. And so we have context. Second come, it's the second coming of Christ. Number two, the specific audience to whom he's writing. And then number three. Very interesting, as you read. He's writing to his audience, but then he shifts the referential identity to another group. In other words... Peter, starting in verse 3, as you read, uses third-person plural pronouns and verbal references to a different group. Yes. He's using third-person now to a different group. Who are these groups? The scoffers. scoffers. The scoff, literally scoffing mockers. Yep. They will, uh, mockers will come, third-person reference, with their, with their mocking, following after uh, their uh Altone, their own lust, it escapes altus, there, at the plur- you know, the third person reference again, there, notice, from verses 3 to 5, he's now speaking about a different audience, no more is it, no longer do we see the second person, you know, uh, um, references here to his, his elect, or to the elect, but now he shifts and using and he uses third person pronouns plural references yes. to talk about a different group the mockers yeah that is probably the most important thing yes of this you know of the interpretation of verse 9 cuz 1 through 5 or 3 through 5 he's talking about not his audience the elect but a different group and he uses third right. person personal pronouns to do so and he's still talking to the elect he's still talking to the church about these people and I don't know if you have a, a different I, right. I might I might step on your toes here a minute, but you know, in verse seven it talks about the heavens and the earth that exist that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept into the day of judgment and destruction. What is that day? The right. destruction and the judgment of the ungodly. Because he's not exactly. going to judge exactly. the, the, the dirt and the animals and the heavens. They're just going to be destroyed and then renewed, as we see down in verse eleven um and twelve right. and thirteen. So the the ungodly are indeed the scoffers who are trying to mocking get the them, who are mocking the gospel, mocking the reality of God's patience, and causing frustration and fear in the life of the believers. 
uh, of Peter's audience. Mm. Mm. Anyway, and the, the, yeah, it, that yeah, that that intensifies this other group right. that he's talking about. They're he's judged. talking to his elect, and he's talking about a third person reference, the mocking scoffers. And I just stress that point to folks: got to follow the context because this is the. I would say this is one of the most important things. Um, the, a key to interpret the interpretation of verse um, of verse eight, understanding the referential identity and the third person other group, which you just laid out. You know the the end of them, the scoffers, the mocking scoffers. Right. Um, and my fourth point is that, um, and it's it, the reason why we don't have to take long on this is because if you follow the context, <laughs> then everything just you know, folds beautifully, yeah, you know, right. it unfolds beautifully and you're locked into Peter's intended meaning. Right. Then we go to verse, verse eight. Now from verses one to five and, and seven, but particularly one to five, he's using third person references, mocking scoffers. Yes. Right. But in verse eight, Peter now refers back to his it. own reading audience right. by using second person, uh, second person plural references when he says, but do not let this one fact escape uh, whom asked your notice, beloved. Yes. Con- now, this is contra to third person references. That's right. Your notice. Don't let this thing, you know, this one inalterable fact escape your, the elect, your notice. So notice how he switches now from third person. Now he goes back, back to his audience. So, therefore, in light of Peter's own uh, understanding, his own defining context, second coming of Christ, and the clear differentiation he makes between the two groups, scoffers versus the elect, we now can appropriately interpret verse 9. And 8 just opens the door for verse 9. I can read it here. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some, I pause there, because as third-person plural reference, as some are, that's the scoffers. That's right. The, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, right? Yeah. And here it is. But he's patient toward you. Who mass? You. <laughs> Second-person plural, yeah. his audience. He's patient toward you. You elect not, not, this is a very strong word. It's not the normal word for willing. Bulamai, it's it's more of a purposing. It's a participle there as well. He's not intending or purposing for any to perish, any of who. Yeah. He's patient toward you, not wishing any to perish. Right. Any of you. Patient toward you. But all, all of who? Of you. All, all of you. Yeah. To come to repentance. So hence, uh, God does not purpose or intend any of his elect to perish. You just said it. But all, every single one of the elect, to come to repentance and life in his Son, just as Jesus said in John six thirty seven that all of the Father... Every single one of them that the Father gives me, they they hexay, they will come. And whoever comes to me, verse thirty nine, I will raise up at the last at the last day. Right. Amen. Amen. Yep. 
it you know it brings the idea of um you know the prophets and I know in Isaiah and other places it talks about that the Lord and his day of judgment will not be stayed it will not be prolonged because isn't that isn't that the the heart of Israel so many hundreds of so many centuries when lord when lord when lord and we see the the imagery of John's apocalypse too uh when we read that when when we read the apocalypse of John and we see the saints and the martyrs under the picture of the saints and the martyrs who were under the th- under the altar and they're saying when lord when lord and so as as the psalmist writes uh i don't know where that is in the psalms i think it might be psalm 90 uh, you know, where it says a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when oh, it is past or as a watch in the night. Yes, Psalm 90, verse 4. And this is his, Peter is reminding his readers of that which they're already very well versed in as Jews. And he's saying, remember all of the patience of the Lord and the long suffering of the Lord. And, you know, Adam lived a thousand years after he died, after he died spiritually. And yet we don't live a hundred years hardly, you know. So time is something that God has utilizes. It's a created abstract, if you will. And we we don't have to fear when we see time just continuing that the Lord has forgotten us. And I want to die. And maybe there's more to it. And I'm not well versed on the grammar here, especially in the Greek. But is there something to be said about the idea of the you know Montanea the the repentance that he's trying to say. This, of course, is not about salvation in the sense of being justified and redeemed, right. but it's about right. the the end of it all, that though these people were suffering and most of them would perish. And if we read chapter 1 of 1 Peter, we see that that is really the theme, that many of you, uh, though you will be what? He says, though you will have to suffer a lot of, of, of things right now, though for a little while, what does he say? You know, you rejoice, though for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, which is more precious than gold that even pe- perishes in fire, may be found to result in the praise and the glory and the honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you do not see him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, which is, Peter says, the salvation of your souls. And then he goes back to the prophecies of the of the prophets. You have this to look forward to. You know that Christ and the apostles of Christ has taught you these things. And he begins that in First Peter by giving an exaltation, a doxology to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And we've been res- we've been we've been given a living hope to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So the, the theme of Peter's intention pastorally has not changed. He's just writing to them in a shorter way of saying, hey, you know what the truth is. I've encouraged you there. I want to stir you up, and I want your mind to remember these things. I want you to come back to the satisfaction of your soul, which is the gospel of grace. I mean, am I I wrong in that when we see the word repentance there? 
that's what Peter is trying to help them do, to change their mind about the frustration and the fear that has come from the mockers and the scoffers and now needs to land solidly back on the bedrock of the gospel of Christ. Is, 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 am, I, am I right in that assumption contextually from the pastoral position in your, in your estimation? Yeah, I mean, I think there's, uh, I think there's merit to, uh, first, we know linguistically the idea of repentance. So I think there's merit to um, say that even those who, you know, the initial repentance, even those the elect who initially believe and, and repent, um, they're, they're, look, Christians are very weak in faith sometimes. Yes. And sometimes they don't repent of their, you know, the sins they commit daily. If they don't do it physically, if they don't, look, if they don't sin physically, they're going to sin mentally. So the Christian life is a life of repentance. Yes. So there's a lot of merit, I think, to um, to your statements in terms of uh, the the uh, the idea and the import of repentance, and um, uh, I think this passage, you know, it, you know when I said it, differentiating the groups, it's key to to understanding verse eight um, and verse nine. I, I I don't separate those verses, and uh, I think it just ties into. Um, a true, and also that, of course, he's talking about a true repentance, which can only come from the Lord. Right. We know repentance is a a gift. Same word Paul uses, you know, in Second um, uh, Timothy two twenty five, and this this is something God grants us. Repentance is something God grants us, but to the elect, He gives us, He purposes uh, us repentance, and you know, I, I love the, the the term He uses. Willing, I, I think it's it's a. I think it's a weak translation. I think purposing would be a stronger one yeah. for uh, bolamanos. It, it's it's a participle. It's very interesting this word because it's not it, it's not the normal uh, fellow, you know, for will, but it, it's rather purpose, plan, counsel. We see that from the root verb bole, um, uh, Acts two uh, Acts two twenty three yeah. is his plan or counsel. We see it in Acts four. Uh, 28 about the purpose of the crucifixion mm. these things aren't will you know he wills and maybe you can thwart his plan i would suggest i would admonish anyone to go to acts 223 where it's translated either plan or counsel and acts 428 purpose or plan or counsel mm-hmm. and ask yourself is this something the crucifixion that both of them deal with that <laughs> where um it was more of a possibility that he was going to be crucified because the same word is used, not willing any should perish, right? Ephesians one eleven, the same thing. Right. He orchestrates all things after the counsel of his own, will. the purpose yes. of counsel. Yeah, are you going to say? Are you going to take that word linguistically? And I mean, in the, in the same semantic vein, you would as an Arminian in Second Peter uh, three nine, and say not willing, but, you know, he wants everyone to be saved, but some aren't. Are you going to use import that same meaning to Acts 2.23, 4.28, Ephesians 1.11? He wants to orchestrate all things after the counsel of his own, you know, will, but that will is not that powerful. Right. See what I'm saying? Right. Linguistically, again, he purposes nobody of his elect, nobody of his elect will perish. Yeah. And oh, one more note I think is very interesting before um, before we get off to Second Peter is there is a, a variant um, of the pronoun in verse nine. 
And it's interesting because both variants communicate what we're indicating right now by the text. The TR has the pronoun humas, which is translated as us. So we read in the King James, I think New King James reads uh, the same, but is long-suffering to usward, to us, right. which is even more, I, I think, uh, uh, definitive. He's, he's patient toward us, not willing any should perish. Right. Um, so both variants, whether it's patient toward you or patient toward us, really affirm the same thing. He makes sure, infallibly, in his sovereign purpose, that none of his elect perish, right. but they all come to repentance. Right. Well, brother, what do you do? I mean, you know, let's 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 toy around with this expression by some gospel. I mean, these these men. I won't I won't mention any names right now, but there are a dozen or so in the history of contemporary Christianity and reform tradition Christianity that will say to appease this issue, they will say, well, let's put the Lord in this light. And they will teach these texts like John 3, 16, etc. In a pretext, in a vacuum, then they will philosophize this way. Well, God desires that none should perish. That's the heart of God. Jesus says, Forgive them, for they know not. And I'm not saying it in this voice to mock and scoff. I'm really not. I'm just. Right, th- right. It's just that it's the tone in which you get. You know, the Lord really does want all human beings to be saved. He, that's just the kind of God He is. But His will may not be done. But it's not because He hasn't tried. You know, and if and and, and I say that. Number one, the context of Scripture does not give us that example at all. Like when you mentioned Acts 2, etc., and, and Ephesians 1, the, Isaiah 46, and, and so on. God does all that he wishes, and he says in his counsel of his word that no one can thwart his will, that no one will stay his hand, and that he does all that he pleases. Jesus, in the contrast of John 3 with the Jews and Nicodemus' thoughts of salvation, he confessed that Jesus was the one come from God, but Jesus rebuked him and said, you cannot see nor enter into me the kingdom except you be born anew by the Spirit as He wishes. So when we see that, I mean, how do you deal, do do you have a response contextually or grammatically where people try to say, well, God desires? Because I know there are some prominent Reformed theologians who say, well, God desires all that, but He's decreed something different. Well, how is it that God's passion is for one thing, and his purpose is for something else. That seems like a, a, a dichotomy to me that does not establish an immutable and impassable God. Yeah, I, I think it's more of a. Um, I know, not, we we have to, and we. I always stress this to Christians that sometimes we have an interpretation, and we just assume every single scholar has that same interpretation because it's yeah. super clear and all these things. But actually, you know, there there's scholars. Um, on both sides of many passages. Now, we're not talking about essential the- theology here. But, um, for instance, this on Second Peter um, 3, 9. Now, I'm convinced, based on, um, aside from the context of the second coming of Christ, based on the switch of pronouns or persons, you know, one's a third, one's second, his audience, so on and so forth, as we already discussed, that it's dealing with, uh, not and, and the word for purpose, it's dealing that his elect do not 
us, his elect do not perish. But there are some, and I think Sproul, I'm trying to remember his commentary on this, um, at least in at least in one of his classes, he actually thought this was more, um, you know, he doesn't desire the death of the wicked and so on and so forth. So there's things he would uh, like to see happen, but there's things that he makes sure happens. You know, they, they draw a distinction. Um, and sometimes it can get philosophical, but sometimes, you know, they're, you know, the, the, the perspective of the two wills of God. Um, there are passages that, that in we just looked at Acts 2 and Acts 4. Um, he doesn't, you know, his will in one sense is that nobody should take an innocent life. But in another sense, his the creative will is that he used Herod, Pontius Pilate, and the people of Israel and the Gentiles to crucify Christ. It was by his hand that he purposed to happen. So things he does that he ordains, that he orchestrates, involve sin. And, um, you know, you've got to be reading a different Bible if you don't see things he orchestrates involve sin, and he can mold and shape the sinner to do whatever he wants it to do. Right. But, um, you know, I think with First Peter, or First Timothy 2.4, and this passage, I just, I'm, I'm very convinced um, for a, a multitude of reasons, um, some grammatical and others are contextual, why um, I think it's not just a permissive kind of will thing, yes. because the, some reformers do have that view. Yeah. I don't. You know, and I just I just see this differently, taking all of the data, I think, in consideration. Well, for the sake of the church and the unity of the faith, here's something that that I would that I would assert. I believe that when we see Hebrews 12 and Romans 2, um, when we talk about the kindness and the forbearance and the patience of God, uh, and even Paul says, do you not or do you presume, and he's talking about his Jewish audience right now, on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? I mean, and, and then you think about Pharaoh. What did God do to Pharaoh to cause him to have a hard heart? He gave him mercy. And he would not regenerate Pharaoh. He was not made for that purpose. So therefore, when Pharaoh never, when Pharaoh had the burden of pressure and the burden of judgment, of course he relented. But when God took it away, the nature of Pharaoh's wickedness, the depravity of his heart, hardened itself in that sense because God hardened the heart of Pharaoh by being gracious toward him giving him an opportunity. And it shows that there is no operative, effectual action and effort of man that can assume that repentance is going to come because he desires it. Now, that and, and people will set me on fire for this around these parts, but in Hebrews 12, we see the, the allusion to whom? We see the allusion back to Esau. And what did it say in that context? Esau was rejected. Paul teaches in Romans 9 that God hated Esau. Esau was the legal one to have the birthright, but God purposed not to approve of Esau. And though Esau sought uh, what repentance with tears, he was rejected. He had no chance for that. He could not. And so I think when we come to the essence of the true gospel, um, we can go to John's gospel. We can go all throughout the Old Testament, but specifically for the New Testament church, we can go to John's gospel, and we can show verse after verse after verse after verse where Jesus himself actually 
calls into play the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 6 in John 12, where he says, they cannot believe, I will not permit it. He sent Isaiah to preach repentance and faith and trust in the gospel, and he told Isaiah it would be a fruitless journey. He would not permit them to believe. And Jesus says it was fulfilled in their presence. So we that's one of the things that needs to be very clear for you all who are listening to this. We are not petting our pet theologies and pumping it up and making it work where it doesn't work. This is the totality of the holistic revelation of God to his people. And we who are those who have been born by the Spirit, we see this. And even though it does fight against our flesh, it is a joy to our new mind that has been given to us by the Holy Spirit. We have, according to Paul, the mind of Christ so that we rejoice even when we have to battle with these truths. We who are filled with the Spirit of God, we do not reject them because when we reject the the clear teaching of God's sovereign work of justifying and saving his elect, we are saying that what we know about God is different. Thus, we have come up with our own God. And a lot of times we forget that the, the, the first century Judaism, Jesus called it a religion that worshiped Satan. Jesus well, called well. them the children of the devil. So what in the world are we to say today about many who claim Christ but reject the clear teaching of Scripture? Right. Jesus would say those same. Now, I'm not going to say that to them because, you know, I'm not going to say you're the sons of the devil or that, you know, you're a satanic. But Jesus may very well would have said that to the religious of our day who hold the Bible in their hand and who reject the doctrines, the teaching of God's sovereign grace. Um, and, you know, that's something if, you know, if you have anything else about, uh, about this, this text, we can, we can go there, but I think that's probably something we could use in closing. Uh, we, we are, we are overrun right now, Edward, with continued examples of how not to act. And you and I have this podcast. We have a platform. You know, we just learned today that we're, we're going to be on certain radio stations across the country, and that's an exciting thing. Uh, you know, in the in the future, um, it's the, the Lord's word is getting out there. But we could come into this podcast studio and we could just belittle people and and talk about them and and really get an audience and probably get some financial support too uh, for people who want to be our cheerleaders in the charge of being rude. Um, oh, let's, uh, yeah, let's take it. Let's, let's do that and take an offering. <laughs> yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. <laughs> yeah. I'll start out. Yeah. Your mama is ugly. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> you know, but, but that is something that I've seen. And I think that the scripture teaches differently. I think that the scripture teaches because we have the Holy Spirit, because we have the mind of Christ, because we have the fullness of the revelation of God, and we have all of the pastoral epistles. We who teach, according to James 3.1, are held to a stricter judgment. That judgment begins in the eyes of men. And so we need to recognize that when we're teaching truth, we eat, we can be dogmatic because truth is dogmatic. <laughs> we don't we don't want to worm around it and be mealy mouth about it and and come to a place where we're trying to patronize everybody to get along. No, truth divides. We know that. 
But I think the division right. needs to be the work of God through the truth, not the work of James or Edward, who just happened to have a real bone to pick with specific people. Because I don't know about you, I don't I don't know about you, brother, but I have really been confronted in the last you know four or five years, especially online and in conferences and things, and people would just get very irate. And when I ask a question of them, it's not necessarily that I even say something to hurt their feelings or make them angry, but I ask a question for clarification, and then they just want to call, call me names or you know stomping their feet or pounding the table. Um, have you experienced things like that as well? <laughs> Welcome to my world. Uh, all the time. Yeah. All, all the time. If if I don't fit into a category of uh, their predilections, then you know I'm. I don't know, all kinds of adjectives I've heard. Um, but the fact of the matter, and here's and you mentioned James in James uh, and and three. In, in James two. It's very interesting. You mentioned James three, but in James two, um, he said. Um, I can paraphrase, he's saying to the Christians, don't hold your faith in our glorious, well, Lord of glory, I like that rendered, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ with an attitude of personal favoritism. And then he gives examples of what not to do. And personal favoritism can exist not only in the church, but outside the church. It can exist with your theologically you know, uh, proficient friends. Uh, you don't want to talk. You don't want to respond to emails or, or really give anyone the time of day if they're weak in the faith. Right. And James says, don't do that. Don't pay special attention to the person wearing fine clothing, you know, and um, he, and, and it's interesting because the works that James talks about, which is, uh, demonstrates true faith, you know, faith without works is right. dead, that kind of work revolves around love. That's right. Loving. The second loving God or love, lo- <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Because he gives, he starts his context with uh, plain favoritism. Yes. Don't do it. That's right. And when people, it, it really grieves me when Christians show contempt, pernicious contempt for other Christians, because, you know, maybe one Christian is not getting a passage right, or maybe he said something really, you know, we, we were talking about, you know, some of the bizarre views that, that folks have, and they get mad and all these things, but we can't show them the same anger. Um, you know, there's many who have a mushy view of justification. There's many who just have, have no idea of the relationship between faith and justification, nor the differences between regeneration. They may believe in, in uh, the doctrines of grace and, and hold it to a high esteem, but they're they still have a very mushy perspective by just lack of study and reading. But these people Paul defines, and the ones that eat just vegetables, as, <laughs> as weak in the faith. But he says, you know, God has accepted those people, the ones that are weak That's in the right. faith. They're strong in the faith Christians, and they're weak ones. That right. will always be true. Even look at the church fathers. What did Eusebius say about Tavius? He said he was stupid. Stupid, yeah. <laughs> He said he was, you don't listen to him, he's stupid. Yeah. But. To them, the weak Christian, we're called to treat them as Christians, co-heirs of grace. If they're really a Christian, they are co-heirs of grace, even if their theology is not, you know, proficiently explained. They're co-heirs of grace. They're part of God's household. But correction, we don't want to misconstrue that with correction, because correction is a loving and needed needed thing to do, as the apostles taught, you know. So Even if it comes to the have, end where we we discover that someone probably is lost or they are not a brother, they do not hold to the yes. faith, uh, we still must be kind. 
We, we even if we have to separate ourselves from them, or uh, <laughs> terribly to say that there are times where doctrine will cause one to be excommunicated from the local assembly because you cannot you cannot be divisive in these doctrinal things um, that are essential to the gospel, and you can't be divisive on the color of the carpet. You can't be divisive at all in the body of Christ, but especially on these things. So we're not saying, guys who are listening, no, we're not advocating for letting people just believe what they want to believe. We're talking about we want to teach people, but we need to keep in mind that it is the Spirit of God through the teaching that causes them to understand it. And when they don't, we can't take personally offense, personal offense at that. Even when they get angry, we must what? What does Paul tell Timothy? Be patient. Patiently endure evil. Patiently deal with your enemies. Teach them that God may grant them repentance, that they may come to the knowledge of the truth, to escape the snare of the devil. That's a lost person. Right. Escape the snare of the devil. It's excellent because, um, you know, we use wisdom. Uh, when we speak to non-believers, we use wisdom. When we speak to believers, and we have to uh, we we have to obey the scripture first, yes. no matter how upset we get. That's right. We have to under I, again. I'll, I'll appeal to Doctor Downey. He says, as Calvinists, we should be the nicest people. Right. But that doesn't mean that we tolerate false doctrine and not no. say anything. That's we, even worse. We I call it out angry. and correct it. We confront error aggressively and biblically, right. not philosophically. Let me say that again, because <laughs> I see too many people appealing to philosophy to win arguments. We got to appeal to to uh, the biblical text to non-believers. We got to appeal to the biblical text to believers when they're in error. We got to stay close and embrace and love the Scripture and let that be the final court of arbitration, and Absolutely. not philosophy. You know, um, it's it's a and it's a. You know, I see this a lot as well. There's too many apologists out there who are very good at the opponent's position, but they're horrible at their own theology. They have a mushy, you know, distorted view of a lot of things. Right. Learn your own doctrine first. Yes. But, um, you know, now then we can rebuke, correct, encourage, revolving around the Word of God. Amen. That's right. You know. That is right. Well, brother, we've run slap out of time, and this was a good discussion. I've enjoyed it, and um, you know, we didn't think we'd take ten minutes on this Second Peter three nine. I want to remind you all listening that it, it's important that we talk about these things. We also want to hear from you. Some of you have sent some questions through you know personal email and messenger and off the website. But if you have questions, you will be – we promise you will receive an answer to these questions. If not on the podcast, if you desire a private email or even a phone call, if it's something that requires that. We'd be glad to do that. So go over to TheologyAnswers.com, and you can listen to other episodes of this podcast. And you can also send in a question that we can answer either on this podcast or other means. But we do want to hear from you. We want to know what's bugging you. If you hear things that we are talking about and you say, well, I think maybe you've misrepresented the passage there or you've missed something. Uh, so you want to try to correct it. We would love to hear that as well because we want to uh, we want to be open to correction if we have yeah. had a verbal typo or, you know, uh, on my end, it's, it, you know, it's wee hours of the morning for me. So uh, there's no telling what I'll say uh, if I'm tired. Um, but in the sense of it all, we really want to teach truth and we want to bring people to the place where they can listen and understand. And by the Lord's grace, he can cause them to believe what we teach. And um, 
at the end of it all, you know, that's why we do what we do. We There's a lot of other things that we could be doing, but teaching the truth of Christ is what we're called to do, and so that's what we're doing today. We're a podcast that are partnered with the Christian Podcast Community.com. There are many other podcasts that are coming up there every single week, and there's a big launch coming in September and October of some more podcasts. And uh, we've got some other partners we want to tell you about in the weeks to come. Brother, next week we're going to talk about total inability or total depravity. And I think it goes hand in hand with these discussions that we're having because we've had a lot of people come and say, well, you know, God loves the world. Well, we've dealt with that. Well, he wants all people to be saved. Well, we've dealt with that. Now we've had some people come up to us and say over the last month or so, well, how do you know? What what about free will? What about free agency? Is man really unable to believe without the work of God? And isn't God just sort of sprinkling some grace out there and we have to respond to it? You know, I made the comment Wednesday night, or one recently in the teaching with the church, I said it's funny how historically when people have come to faith or been, quote, led to Christ, that they're immediately told by those people that have talked with them or supposedly led them to salvation. Now go tell someone what you've done. And I know you've had a many years' experience in altar call-type ministries. Have you ever heard anybody tell someone that? Go tell somebody what you have done. And, you know, thinking it came to my mind this week and I thought back on it. I'm like, you know how many times I've heard that? Go tell somebody, what have I done? What have I done? I've done nothing. If we're saved tonight and today and tomorrow and the next day, it's because God in his infinite, glorious, loving mercy has caused us, as First Peter says, caused us to be born again in Christ Jesus. So, but uh, any final comments? Um, no, I'm, I'm looking forward to uh, next week. And um, friends who are listening, um, you know, we just want to challenge you to go further in your study. Amen. Uh, you know, we're, we're, you know, presenting our views. Well, you know, test it, you know, That's get right. some, uh, you know, consult some commentaries, you know, go deeper because we don't have a long time on this earth and nothing else matters but building a relationship in not only in doctrine, but glorifying the Lord, building your doctrine up and glorifying the Lord so you can be effectual in your presentation, whether it's evangelism to non-believers or evangelism to Christians. Amen. That's right. That's right. Well, we thank you all for listening to this episode of Theology Answers. Look for us again, as I've already said, at TheologyAnswers.com. You can find my website over at AnchoringFaith.org, and Brother Edward is at ChristianDefense.org. And we look forward to seeing you all very soon.